Welcome to our Christmas edition of the Ben Davis Show. He's our version of Santa. Works one day, but makes everyone happy. Ho, ho, ho. What about the stitch up there? I mean, it's two days. Come on, two days. And I've got my little stitch-up Santa's helpers here alongside me, the Hoff and Slammin' Sam. Yeah, that's right, boys. If I'm in here at this time of year, so are you. Hey, it's great to see you. What a year we've had, 2023. World Cups and Brisbane teams into grand finals, the Lions and the Broncos for the first time. Um, outside of Slammin' Sam's DJ skills, Hoff, what was your standout for the year? Where do you start? Oh, I've got to go to one of our last shows, actually. I'm talking to John McCoy about his highlights during his career. To me, that was one of the best interviews we did all year, and I really enjoyed that one. Outstanding. Sam, we probably should have put that on the list of the recaps we were going to do in the Christmas special. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had time. Actually, that's right. We had to take him over two breaks. The legend that is John McCoy. I tell you what, if I can grow up and be half as good as John McCoy, uh, we'll be doing things happy. Now, Sam, your mm, music skills your music taste had been called into question by some not me i love what you do pressing the buttons there and and giving us a real pulse of the show no i appreciate that um yes yeah, no 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 you weren't supposed to talk you're supposed to play something I was, was, okay. <laughs> i've lost my touch oh there we go hey it is the silly season for a reason um being a big part of sport and the sporting landscape in this city, in this state, in this country, uh, the, the standout, the, the the thing that stuck in your mind from 2023? Uh, well, about from June to July during the origin period, it's just been scrapped from my memory. Um, but I reckon, I think... Uh, see, that's right. He's also the resident's blues fan. See, I didn't have to bring that up, but he did. You know what? You've... Every hero needs a villain. That's one of the catch cries of this show. And the cockroaches. I mean, they sneak in with the humans sometimes. Anyway, sorry, Sam, you were saying? I don't think I can go past the World Cups, whether it was at the, the very top of the top of the game with the Australian cricket team and the Matildas bringing, mm. bringing women's football uh, up in the this diamonds. country. The Diamonds as yes, well. Home the um, to then the rugby and waking up at ungodly hours of the morning to, to watch the Wallabies losing. Um, and now... Looking toward, looking forwards in the future of Australian rugby, I don't think I can go past the World Cups this year. I think with the amount of sport that we were spoilt with from overseas, uh, playing catch up on the sleep is what we're doing over this summer. Hopefully the next hour or so doesn't put you to sleep because we're going to recap what an amazing year it has been. Not only on an international level, but domestically as well. We saw the birth of the Dolphins, a brand new NRL team. And didn't they catch everyone by surprise? We saw a legend of motorsport in SVG come and go and he's heading to to the States. You don't hear from him much, but you will be hearing from him over the next hour. Kalen Ponga, his career on the line, a concussion. Was he ever going to come back from it? Well, not only did he come back from it, he led Newcastle on a run like we haven't seen before and picked up the Dally M. So we are blessed with talent. Young Dolphins, World Cup winners, Dally M winners, Bathurst winners, and those who've been there before in the world of rugby trying to pick it up and put it all together again. Something about Humpty Dumpty there, isn't it? No? Oh, no, that's Easter with eggs, isn't it? We're talking Christmas. We've got the sack full, ready to go into the silly... What? You blokes. 
Seriously, grow up. Uh, where are we going to start? All right, let's talk some cricket because it is that time of year when our national sport is front and centre. Of course, SENQ, the home of cricket, the World Cup. What a wonder it was. And you know what? There was a Queenslander front and centre. Actually, he wasn't front, but he was centre. I'm talking the accidental hero, Manus Labashain, should never have been in the one-day World Cup squad. Well, he wasn't to start with until he got a call up because Steve Smith had hurt his wrist in South Africa. And boys, remember, he went over there just as a shadow, just as cover, just as standby. And then came in the uh, concussion sub, the super sub in Marnus Labuschagne. He's annoying on the field, annoying to selectors too, and then forced his way into the lineup. Is there a place in the Australian side for a specialist concussion sub? Because it, it seems to be his real niche, doesn't it? And you know what? He was never out of the one-day team since. The only other player to go through and do that was David Warner. Marnus Labuschagne, the unsung hero. And I spoke to him the moment he touched down back in the country after what was an epic but long campaign. Oh, we can be heroes just for one day. The unsung hero, in my opinion and my view of this cricket team, I'm talking of none other than the Queenslander himself, Marnus Labuschagne, uh, who's probably right now just about to put his head on the pillow getting home, uh, was very kind enough to answer my call. And I started by congratulating him being a world champ. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It's, um, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty amazing achievement. I think what the team's done uh, over the last... Three months, that's for sure. Um, a World Test Championship, uh, retaining the Ashes, and now a, a one-day World Cup trip. It's a career-defining year for, for the team, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think to everyone. I think it's just the team, the coaching staff, everyone, to bring to bring that performance together, you know, not only for the Test cricket and and for the Ashes, for the World Test Championship, but for, for this World Cup, to bring it all together, some of the risks... Um, that they took in terms of carrying Travis Head in the in the 15-man squad with yeah. a broken hand, um, going to India with 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 only one out-and-out spinner, and then obviously you know you can't underestimate the how good Glenn Maxwell bowled during the the tour. Yeah. But um, you know there there was heaps of things you know like you know that they they took risks they. They trusted their process, and um, you know they they ended up getting the um, getting the reward at the end. Mate, and with all those risks and players coming in and out and returning from form, some returning home, like Mitch had to go home and then come back. Travis coming in, you know, for you, you, you were last man in, so you know it's last man in, first man out, right? That's the mentality. But you stuck the course, or the selectors stuck course. With you. Did, were you thinking that at all through this tour? Like, oh, well. You know, I'm going to get the tap on the shoulder at some stage because I'm just kind of feeling in. You know, was there ever that feeling from you? Um, I truly believe that you know there was something bigger at stake here this World Cup, and that um, you know that that I was going to play. Uh, yeah. and, and I think the way it unfolded, you know, I believe that, but that certainly doesn't mean that there's uh, there was occasions there. Well, there was occasions there where I did get the tap on the shoulder. And I wasn't meant to be playing. And then someone got injured. Someone fell off a golf cart. Someone, you know. Were then, you driving? You know, <laughs> no, well, I wasn't on the same cart. Uh, but but you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So those instances actually happened. 
Um, and then, you know, for the last three games, I think, was the first time we had the full – no, sorry, last two games. Yeah. Was the first time we had the full squad available. Um, the full 15. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was – you know, once again, I've got to thank the selectors and Andrew McDonald and, and Pat for – for trusting in me and sticking with me mm. and knowing that, you know, if an occasion like that came up, that I could step up and, and produce. Uh, and produce he did. 58 not outs in the World Cup final. Manus Labashain, he just keeps getting the job done for Australia, whether it's with the red ball and the white ball. Now, I want to switch gears, and yes, I'm using that pun intentionally because my next interview is with a bloke who you don't really hear from. He's not that big on the media because he's the shy retiring type. But by jeez, he can drive. I'm talking none other than Shane Van Gisbergen. Last year, he was ranked in the top 10 drivers on the planet by Autosport magazine, and that list included the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Will Power. He is up there with the elite of the elite. We are in awe of his skill, his timing, his calmness, his ruthlessness, his ability to tame anything with four wheels. He is on the line right now. Shane Van Gisberg, and it is great to talk to you. Welcome to SENQ. Thanks for the chat, mate. Hey, thank you. Uh, nice, nice intro, <laughs> <laughs> mate. Can, can I can I ask you uh, about things outside of supercars because this is what we love uh, about you. And I mentioned it in the intro that you you pretty much tame anything on on four wheels. Last year we saw you go to Le Mans and you gave that a crack. You've had a crack at World Rally Championship as well. Where, where does the love of cars come from for you? Yeah, I guess I've always just grown up around it and. When I was younger, I used to go to Pukekohe all the time, and that's what made me love um, supercars. So, yeah, I've always always wanted to race and, yeah, still still love it and enjoy it all. So, yeah, getting to try and experience all different kinds of things with all different teams and people and cars, like it's, um, yeah, it's just really fun to to do what we do. So um, I try and, try and race as much as we can. And supercars now, we only race 12 times a year, so not enough. I need to find something to do the rest of the year it's pretty cool that the the red bull racing guys allow you to to do that but i'm, I'm tipping it would probably make you a, a better driver experiencing all the different vehicles is, is that fair to say yeah of course like i um i notice when i don't drive for two three four weeks um you jump back in and the cars seem so much faster like your reactions aren't up to speed so definitely getting to drive stuff um you know keeps you keeps your hand in and keeps you Keeps you sharp. All right. Albert Park from the weekend. Uh, a race win and podium finishes. So that's yep. that's normally a good weekend. But it's a little bit different this year, isn't it, with the Gen 3s? And you are not leading the Packers, which we've seen. Does that make you hungrier being the hunter rather than the hunted? I don't know. Like, it's difficult. We obviously got um, disqualified from the first race, so we lost all the points from that. So... That's put us behind everyone, but yeah, we're just yeah. It was a weird, a weird weekend with the um, being a support category. It was a bit of a fast, really. Like we only got three laps in one race, and you get full points for that. So it's a bit of a joke racing at the supercars event at the moment with the short races and the pit stops and the tire rules and stuff like that. So 
it was a real shame. But um, we had a good good points weekend. But yeah, you'd obviously want the category to put on a better show. So it was a hard one. There we go. A rare interview with Shane Van Gisbergen, and that was back in March. Already the writing was on the wall that this would be his last year in supercars. Mm, And you heard it here on SENQ. Uh, Hopefully we'll catch up with him next year when he's doing his thing in the States. Uh, Speaking of rare interviews, I I want to play you this one. It's from the world of rugby league. Yeah, we'll be hearing from Kalen Ponga, the Dalian medalist, uh, a little later in this special. But a guy who's just starting out his career, and geez, wasn't it good? The Dolphins, they burst on the scene. The dawn of the Dolphins, the Battle of Brisbane, the rivalry. And really, we weren't giving them a shot to start with. Well, I wasn't. A team that had really only been together for six weeks coming into making their NRL debut. And they found themselves top of the ladder with Brisbane after four weeks in the Battle of Brisbane. And one of the key positions was held down by a teenager, Isaiah Katoa. A rare interview, but a rare insight into how a young kid was making his way in the NRL and also meeting up with the super coach, Wayne Bennett. Qatar, double pop, Hammersay, Tommy Tino! The Dolphins do it again! Cool, calm and collected. I said it earlier, I haven't seen a better NRL debut in a key playmaking position since Carmichael Hunt as a 17-year-old kid back in, what was that, 2004? That's almost 20 years ago. From Penrith to the Peninsula, he is the Dolphins 5'8". Zaya Gatoa, welcome to SENQ. Good morning, mate. Morning, guys. Thanks for having me. I want to take you back to your 18th birthday. What a present that was, signing a three-year deal with the Dolphins. Oh, mate, mate, it was unreal. Um, Yeah, I remember... I was sitting in my room when it came out um, and my manager, he messaged me um, a, a couple of hours, a couple of hours before um, and he goes, you know, the Dolphins are going to announce your signing today on your birthday and I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't really know how to react. You know, I knew um, that I was signed and stuff, but I didn't realise that they were going to announce it on my birthday and then, you know, once it happened, it just all happened so fast and then, you know, Luckily, it was early on in the year, so then after that, I got to just focus on having fun last year, my last year of school, and you know, enjoying my time with my mates before I get into a um, professional career, so it was awesome. Well, that's, that's the thing. You're still at school when that happens. I mean, show and tell takes on a very different very different space. I, know yeah. that. I mean, could you, tell, could you tell your mates at school before it was announced that you knew that you were, make, you know, you were signed with an NRL club? No, no, I had to. I had to keep it to myself and my family, um, especially because I was still at Penrith as well. We yeah. didn't want, um, you know, we didn't want anyone finding out before Penrith got to find out. So, um, I guess just out of respect, um, my family and my manager, we kind of made the decision to to not tell anyone. Um, you know, not until you know we we told Penrith that um, you know that we're going to be moving up here to Redcliffe. So. Um, yeah, I had to kind of keep that to myself, which was pretty hard. I've got to ask that the first conversation you had with Wayne Bennett, can you share a little bit of insight or something that just sticks in your mind about what the, the super coach said? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's something that stuck in my mind and, you know, also my, my parents, um, my dad was always sitting next to me in our Zoom meeting um, because that's kind of how we had to do it. We jumped on the Zoom with Wayne, Terry and, um, Peter Sullivan and 
um, just kind of had a chat, more just a general chat, and you know, and then um, was one thing that Wayne said, um, you know, and it resonated with my 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 dad so much is was, um, you know, if I was to go over there, um, you know, Wayne would would look after me to make sure, you know, nothing happens to me, um, you know, keep me away from the media and and you know, would protect me. You know, in, in whatever, um, and you know, straight away, uh, my dad just felt like, um, you know, obviously Wayne was you know, was one of the best, if not the best, coach before that. You know, he even said that to me. But mm. you know, after saying that to me, um, it kind of just that kind of cemented our decision, and you know, that's because you know, I've always had my father as my coach, so he's always been the one that's you know, um, pulling me up and you know, keeping me grounded. So. Um, to have someone like Wayne say that, um, you know, it just meant a lot for him. So, um, yeah, that's why we ended up kind of making that decision to move over here. Oh, it's a wonderful insight, isn't it? As Katoa, the Dolphins rookie half, and Wayne Bennett and his relationship. I mean, fair dinkum, he's old enough to be his granddad, Wayne Bennett, but isn't that just the respect and the cut-through, generational cut-through that he still has as well. Uh, we are just getting started, part of Mornings with Ben Davis Christmas special. What a year it was, 2023. A year of World Cup, some great, some not so. We'll talk Matildas. We'll be hearing from Kalen Ponga, the Dalian medalist, but we'll also be touching base in the world of rugby. Was there a bigger story in Australian sport than the Wallabies flop at the World Cup and Eddie Jones walking away? That's all to come here on SENQ. Ben Davis with you for the next little while as we sail into the Christmas festive season. Welcome back to the Ben Davis Christmas special. Merry Christmas from ours to yours. Thanks for your company as we head into Christmas, but also thanks for your company for 2023. Without you, the show would not have been anywhere near the success and the fun that it has been. And didn't we have some rides along the way in what was a hell of a year? Brisbane was in the frame to be title town. The Broncos and Lions making the AFL and NRL grand final for the first time. The NRLW, the Titans, the girls got there as well in that final weekend in September, the first week of October. And it was a World Cup year as well. Uh, You name the sport, they pretty much had a World Cup, didn't they? The Diamonds, they kicked us off in great style, but... After that, it was lean pickings for the Aussies. Our cricketers brought it home, though, too. In the middle of it all was the biggest surprise packet in Australian sports history, the Matildas. The Women's Soccer World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, it blew everyone away. It captured a nation's imagination. And as far as a TV spectacle... You could not get enough of it. Front and centre of it was David Bashir calling for the Seven Network. And, well, he was about to embark on one of the biggest and most watched sporting events this country has ever seen. He took some time out before calling the Matildas semi-final to have a chat to you and I. We are about to engulf ourselves with one of the biggest sporting events this country has seen. Perhaps the most listened to, the most watched 
call in Australian sports history. David Bashir will be calling the Matildas tonight for the Seven Network. David, a, a very good morning to you. No, no, no pressure, mate. You, but you could be the most watched person on Australian television tonight. No, Ben. There's no pressure whatsoever. I'm just excited, <laughs> mate. It's a great. <laughs> it's a great day for Australian sport. No, um, I think the Matildas have fully deserved their semi-final berth. Um, it is a huge moment. We all know that. You know, it's it's massive because the whole country's got behind a team that has showed itself to be real, and and you know all the stories about the players have been accepted and and hungrily sort of digested, and people have really resonated with this team. So I'm just there to guide people through. I hope I do a good job. I hope I'm, I get everything right, but I'm I'm planning to enjoy it, mate. Your career. Started back in the mid '80s, yet we are seeing you now front and centre. And knowing that you could take that record from Bruce McAvaney, a fellow South Australian, that of being the most watched or listened to commentator in Australian sports history. Well, Bruce is working on the broadcast tonight, so I, I don't think that'll be a conversation between <laughs> between us. I'm not sure about that, but uh, I, I just think you know what, I'm, I'm not, it's not supposed to be. Uh, false modesty, but of course I'm excited about tonight. And you know, it's a privilege to call national team matches, whether it's the Matildas or the Socceroos. And it was an amazing run they had in Qatar. But it's all about the athletes. It's all about the team. It's all about the the emotion of the fans. You know, I'm basically a conduit to all that. And obviously, I've got to prepare the way I do and and talk to as many people as I do. And I I just love it. I love Australian football. I love what the Matildas stand for. I think they've become so relevant in Australia because the fans resonate. You can't feign this type of adulation. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Mm. People connect with this team because of the struggle of the team to get where they've got to. And that's talking about, you know, mums taking three jobs to get their, their, their kids through football, not even knowing that they'd be a Matilda, but just to play the game. And, uh, you know, all those, all those stories have resonated strongly. And, you know, we're punching above our weight. There's no doubt about that. You know, we're talking about England. Uh, the English players play not only in the best clubs in the WSL in England, but, you know, for Barcelona and Bayern Munich and all these huge clubs in Europe. You know, some of our players play in mid-tier leagues in Europe. It's a big difference. So they have performed uh, outside of their comfort zone. And with Sam Kerr not there, they've lifted and, 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 and you know, they've raised the bar, all of them to get, get us to this point. David Bashir, he was the voice of the Matildas when it came to the World Cup. And what about them? They were raising the bar uh, for women's sport. And we know that the rising tide lifts all boats. We have seen big things in this country on the back of the Matildas and women's participation in across all sports. Speaking of raising the bar... Could he get any better? What about a season that he had? Kalen Ponga, a surprise in many eyes as the Dalian medalist. But when you think about the run home and how he led the Knights on that winning streak, uh, taking them to the finals after, well, we all wrote them off too. What a year it was for Kalen Ponga. But remember, it was a year that was in doubt, a year that was in jeopardy. In fact, his career was completely in doubt with those concussion and those head knocks. We were lucky enough to catch up with Kalen just before the season had started when he was still in the frame to play State of Origin. Sit back and enjoy, KP. It's still over Queensland, though. Ponga through. 
Taylor, oh. the magic man from Newcastle. <laughs> he has threatened with every touch of the ball. And he's put his state ahead. I'm glad to say that he is on the line right now. Uh, Kalen, good morning or good afternoon to you. Well, look back, July 22 was the last time you played for the Knights and obviously concussion robbed you of the back end of the season. How, how was that time? How, how's the melon straight up? But also how is and was that time to, to get back onto the park? Um, the melon's good. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, been, I've gone through pre-season I've done all the contact sessions and everything um, necessary. And, yeah, I actually forgot about the, the concussion and stuff like that. So it's, that's positive. Um, that time, was it was it was hard, I reckon, for me mentally, just um, being pulled out of games, you know, because of a concussion. And then feeling, well, I thought I felt fine at the time, and there's no real injury, if, that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, you can't physically feel it, but... Um, yeah, it was tough. And then, yeah, I guess for me now, it's just about leaving that in, back in 22 and, and moving forward and looking forward to this season. Now, the Knights last year, obviously, with you being out, that caused uh, a, a few headaches, uh, pardon the pun there, but finishing 14th on 14 points, how confident are you are making the top eight and playing finals? I know you spoke about that's that's probably the measure of you stepping up at 5'8", but... But how can you make top eight? Yeah, um, probably not worrying about the end result. Uh, that's definitely not the. Like obviously, the the goal is top eight. The like I said the other day, the metric, the measure for a oh, well success, if you want to use that word, is um, top eight. But yeah, I think it's just probably building. Like we've got some some new combinations, some new faces in the club, and they've already brought so much culture to us already. Um, it's about building upon that and yeah just bringing pride back into the jersey I reckon for us um, I think top eight is very very, very doable um, uh, and I'm pretty confident in that Hey that culture that leadership I mean that that almost starts and finishes with you doesn't it with the C beside your name and you spoke about the other day about being a better leader what, what, what does that involve what processes have you done to be a better leader uh, yeah, being more aware of myself. Um, I think last year I fell into the trap of I got appointed um, captain of the club, and my whole mentality was be the perfect captain, be the perfect captain. But in in doing that, I need to be I need to be myself as well. And I think that's probably something that I'll do more this year is is be me, um, be authentic, and then also talk, have conversations with the people around me. I think. Um, People that were brought into the club this year, Adam Elliott, um, Tyson Gamble, some new faces, the younger boys that are coming through, and then also like having Tyson, Frizzell, and the staff there as well. Um, there is a solid core group there now that's that's pretty stable, and we're looking to move forward, um, obviously building leadership, all of us, and I think that's something going to help the club. And help it did. Caelan Ponga, prophetic words considering that was pre-season after the bye round where a lot of their players went to Bali. Oh, they were thrown under the bus.
Then they picked up that bus, jumped on it, and sailed all the way into the finals. What an incredible run it was. Uh, thanks for your company this morning. Heading into Christmas, I hope it has been an absolute amazing festive season for you. It's been an amazing year to be with you for 2023. The ups and downs, the ins and outs. We've had grand finals. We've had World Cups. The, su- the success of the Matildas, the success of our Australian cricket team. But on the flip side... Perhaps the biggest story of the year was the Wallabies, the World Cup, the blow-up, the captain's call, and Eddie walking out the door. That next. Welcome back to the Ben Davis Christmas Special. Merry Christmas from ours to yours. Oh, thanks for your company during the silly season, but more importantly, over the entire season that has been 2023 and going forward into 2024. Without you, the show would not have been half as what it was. Uh, well, what a year it was too. We've had the grand finalists with the Broncos and Lions and the Titans, a, a World Cup year as well. But the biggest story out of all of it, yes, you may argue the Matildas, but on the flip side, it's the one where Australia faltered. I'm talking the Rugby World Cup. The Wallabies, Eddie Jones. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Where do we even start? Well, we're starting now with a reset being hit at rugby headquarters. That has been the good thing coming out of this. And I think the fact that the Wallabies didn't make it past the pool stages was a good thing. Had we have made the playoffs, maybe the cracks may have been wallpapered over. It all went pear-shaped and now a new shape is being brought into Rugby Australia. At the time, though, it didn't sit too well with you, the fans, nor the players who had been there and done it before. One man who was very easily accessible on this to you was a man who had some very strong thoughts on it, and why not? Our Wallaby captain, Stephen Moore, he'd been coached by Eddie Jones, he'd played at World Cups, and he hated what he was seeing. Here they come, the Welsh. They're over. They twist the knife and Gatlin's men complete an absolute humiliation of the Aussies. Aussie rugby hits rock bottom. Does the whole rugby program in Australia need to be blown up, start again, hit the reset button? And what are the quarterfinals looking like? Who will get through? It's an absolute feast of rugby if you can stomach it without the Wallabies. One man I know is taking it hard. He was over there. In fact, I speak none other than former Wallabies captain Stephen Moore, who joins me now on the line. Uh, Squeak, do we need to blow everything up, start again, or is it tweaking at the edges? What do you th- what do you see now in, the I guess, the clear light of day and what's happened over the, the, the last three or four weeks that, that needs to happen to Australian rugby to make us competitive for the next, well, the next World Cup and also the uh, the Lions Tour? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point, and it's very difficult to say. Uh, it's sort of good we didn't make the quarterfinals. I, I find that pretty hard to, to say. Me but, too. Uh, yeah, as everyone does. But I, I think you're right. It, sometimes it does take this kind of uh, moment for us to sit back and say, well, where to from here? And I guess there's the emotion and the immediacy of what's just happened. But then if you take a step back, there's the the overall strategy and the plan for the game in Australia is not something that we can fix overnight. It's going to take a lot of a lot of involvement, uh, some detail, and probably a little bit of time to digest that to to be able to come up with a really clear plan around how we rebuild the game from the ground up in Australia. Because at the end of the day, that's what's needed. Uh, the game is at probably its greatest low at the moment. I think both professionally. 
And, you know, you look at the footprint of the game around Australia and uh, how the game's probably regressed over the last however many years and now is the time to be having these conversations. The provincial system at the moment where we've got WA, we've got Melbourne, again, outside of rugby strongholds. We know that expansion is great, but if your nursery in your backyard and your main sort of states are not firing as well... Should we just mm. condense and bring back to the strongholds of New South Wales and Queensland? Is that something that needs to to happen? Yeah, look, I, I'm always coming at this from the, the lens of you know being capital constrained and only having a certain amount of money to mm. spend on on this end of the game. And I just think for the money we have spent, uh, particularly in the expansion teams of WA and Melbourne, uh, we haven't got the return that we would like to have got and. Uh, I think that it's time to look at you know, our base and where we can really be strong and where we can dominate uh, the winter codes. And if it's going to be anywhere, it's going to be in Queensland and New South Wales. And, and the Reds and the Waratahs haven't been competitive for a long time. So how do we make those teams stronger and in turn strengthen the game around the, those states? So, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about country rugby in Queensland and in New South Wales and... I think the money that we are putting into, say, the Force and the Rebels needs to be redirected uh, to the grassroots in WA and Victoria and South Australia and all the other uh, states around the country. But at the very pointy end, that the professional end of the game, I think we need to contract that and really streamline that so that we've got fewer pathways and we've got much more control about where a player goes or, or a young player goes from school through to club, through to Super Rugby, and then ultimately through to the Wallabies. At, at the moment, we, we don't have good visibility or control of that because of our footprint. And I think there's been a lot of money wasted. And a good example is the Melbourne Rebels, for example. A lot of their players are coming back to play club rugby in Brisbane. Uh, so... For me, I'm just asking, well, why are they down there in the first place? Why, why aren't we, haven't we got them up here full-time so that we've got full control over their programming, you know, that, that whole pathway from school right through to Wallabies? Uh, we, we need to be really clear, and at the moment, that's a little bit all over the shop. Mate, I love what you're saying, and, and I think there's a lot of strength in it. One of the stumbling blocks that I can see straight up, though, is broadcast deals. I mean, they want more teams. They want more content. How do you appease them if you're scaling back? Yeah, then that's the sticking point, isn't it? But uh, I guess the argument to that is that the quality of content that we're getting at the moment is is poor. There's too many ordinary games, uh, one-sided games, particularly when we're playing the Kiwi sides as well. Um, so whilst we might have a lot of content in Super Rugby, the quality of it is really questionable. And I think that's... That's something that the broadcasters need to be really clear on is is that do we have less content but higher quality? Uh, or is it worth looking at the club competition and what that looks like, uh, you know, an FA Cup style format? I, I don't know the answer to it. Uh, as I said, the broadcast piece is one of those wicked problems that will take more than a, a phone conversation to, to solve. And, you know, people from all around the game are broadcasting the, the media landscape, but also... Uh, you, you know, all of our provincial teams and then all the club teams as well need to have input into what the game looks like from top to bottom. 
No, not Nostradamus. It was Stephen Moore, former Wallabies captain, and it was a crystal ball that he held because, yes, from top to bottom, the whole game needs to be looked at, and that's exactly what's happening right now. There was a blow-up inside the boardroom. There was a coup, if you like, and now a Queenslander is in charge. A rugby man, Daniel Herbert, was installed as the new chairman of Rugby Australia, and I was lucky enough to have a chat to him the next day. Daniel Herbert... Change is not easy. Uh, are, are you prepared for? Are you prepared for war? Uh, look, I don't think we want war. I think the. I don't think we're going to get uh, the outcomes that we need through war. I think we actually just need to get people in a room and agree on the way forward and the, the solutions that we need. Because uh, you know, it, I don't think a war. I don't think a civil war really. You know, people can say it can bring it to a head, but I don't think a civil war is in the game's best interest. And you know, we. We've been through a fair bit, and this game, I've been around it for 45 years. It has the tendency to eat itself, and uh, between the, you know, the community stream into the uh, into the Super Rugby clubs and uh, and onto RA, and I've I've played a part in all three of those um, areas. Mm. And they tend to, uh, you know, they tend to eat themselves at, at times, and I think there's a time culturally where the game just needs to get behind itself and, and back itself, and uh, you know, it's our job to to lay out the plans of how to do that. But uh, you know, I don't think I don't think we're going to get anywhere through having a civil war. Well, that and that's good. That that's that's obviously the game plan. Do do you think that mm. is going to happen though with those who are in power of the different states now, or are you confident that you can get through this um, peacefully? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it won't be peaceful. I mean, you said change is difficult, and it is. And it won't be peaceful, and not everyone will be happy about it. And even the, I mean, and I'll just focus for a moment on the, I guess, the high performance stream of the game because that's that's one thing that I said when I was asked to consider going on the board was, you know, what do you think some of the problems are? And I said, well, that that isn't, you know, that isn't modern. You know, that whole high performance area, the way that we're structured under a federated model. I mean, I heard one of your callers talking about pathways. Well, you know, that those pathways are a state union. Um, you know, we get back to a federated model. That's a state union obligation and responsibility. That's not a not a national union. So, you know, where you want that to change, though, we need to. Well, we it needs to be integrated. Yeah. You know, at the moment, it's all you know, it's all kind of you do that and you do that, and it's a bit like when we went through COVID, where the prime minister would come out and say we're going to do this, and then the, the state premiers come out and say no, we're not, we're going to do this, and it's a bit like that. Um, you know, our politics reflects our sporting landscape, and it doesn't work in a high performance area. So that's something we need to address and, and other countries have, have managed to get agreement and do that. Yeah. So you know, New Zealand did it after they got bundled out of the two thousand seven uh World Cup and Ireland did it back in around two thousand twelve, thirteen. So it can be done and they're they're both different. I think Scotland's done it as well. Many countries and more are doing it now, so after the World Cup. So it's now seen as 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 best practice. Um it's not a cut and paste. Everyone looks a little bit different. But you know we've got to get, you know we've got to get attention on that, and uh, you know the the states are all doing their own pathways, and uh, they've got their own Super Rugby clubs, and then we have a a Wallaby coach and a team who come together and assemble, and they've got sort of very little oversight of what's happened during the year, and that's uh, you know that's got to change. Herbie, I, I love seeing you at Yoku Road yesterday at Jeeps, uh, and it was just across the oval from where you went to school. That, that's been one of the, the big issues, and I, I guess it was one thing that Phil brought up about how, how do you keep it? How do you keep a sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old Dan Herbert now in in the game of rugby, rather than going to rugby league or AFL, or, or just keep them playing after after they they turn eighteen? 
yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because it's competitive, and our competitors have, uh, you know, have have more money than us, and they can spend more of that space. So we've got to be more targeted, and uh, and make sure that we get most of the decisions right. And you know, it's it's difficult, you know, because it's competitive. And I think the thing that rugby has is a very good value proposition around the game and what it, you know, what opportunities it presents. You'd, it's got the international side to the game that, um, you know, that our two main competitors don't. Um, you get to travel a lot. So I think there's a good, I think there's a good value proposition and, uh, mm. you know, with the World Cups and Lions and the things that, uh, the competitions that rugby has, I think that's very appealing. Um, but, uh, you know, it, there's no shying away. It's a competitive landscape and we've got two very strong competitors in contact sport. I think we're the only market in the world that has has those three uh, competition sport or contact sports competing. So it's uh, it's a it's a big challenge, and uh, we've just got to be at the coalface. We've got to be more present in schools and clubs, um, and that's you know that's actually driving a strategy through the um, the unions, the member unions, to make sure that they deliver on it. And at the moment, as you know, I would I would say that I think it's all a bit fragmented. With everyone does their own version of that, whereas if we can. If we can have one version and we all deliver it locally, then I think that would be better. After the break, we will touch base inside a man who had been there and done it all. In fact, he was the self-proclaimed Brownlow factory. Who is it? We'll find out straight after this. Welcome back to the Ben Davis Christmas Special. Merry Christmas from ours to yours. Nearly out of time here on the Ben Davis Mornings Christmas Special, but I will leave you with this little chestnut from uh, inside the lion's den. All right, I need to set this up. Mr. September is in the building. He's in the studio, Clark Keating. A very good morning to you. I know Mr. September is how you're commonly known as, but is the Brownlow factory, is that another moniker that you wear? Yeah, or is that... well, the, the Brownlow maker. Yeah. Um, well, fun, funnily enough, on the two occasions when Acker and Blackie won the Brownlows, on those Sundays, um, they came to my house. I had a blue couch that was like the colour of the Brownlow medal, <laughs> and both of them fell asleep on that couch on the Sunday before the Monday Brownlow. And funnily enough, they both won. Oh, there you but, go. You know, so it was called the Brownlow Maker Couch. Yeah, nice. I had. Where, yeah. Where's that couch now? It's in the dump, didn't it? Uh, oh. Nudgy. <laughs> I could have sold it, you reckon? Yeah, we could have taken it to the club. I mean, imagine if you just get Lockie to sleep on it or Huey. I yeah. mean, Lockie's already got, got it. Brownlow. Brownlow. Yeah. yeah. And let's not forget Josh Dunkley as well. I reckon Fags has gone and rescued that couch from the nudgy dump and sat locking Neil on it at the beginning of this season. Uh, Hoff, Sammy, thank you again for being part of this show, uh, being part of this year. We'll do it all again in 2024. Have yourselves a very merry and safe Christmas. You too, Benny. And yourself, Benny. Thanks for a great year. Beautiful. Uh, time to crack a cold one. Uh, enjoy until we speak again in 2024. Good luck. Good luck.